Hello everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Radai. I'm your host, Eddie Palmgren, and with me in the studio this time is Martin Wallström, one of our bright and driven research analysts here at Radai. How are you, Martin, and uh, how come we are sitting here today? I'm great, Eddie, and as you mentioned, I work at Radai as a research analyst, a job that involves quite a bit of reading, and reading is also a big passion of mine. Uh, from a friend, I got recommended a book that he thought presented an interesting angle on equity valuation. And after reading it, I realized that it resonated perfectly with the philosophy of investing by the books. As a result, I reached out to the author, and that book was Accounting for Value by Stephen Penman. And for those not familiar with him, who is uh, Stephen Penman? Penman is a professor of accounting and fundamental valuation at Columbia Business School and Bocconi. He is the founding editor of the journal Review of Accounting Studies and has been elected into the Accounting Hall of Fame. He is also the author of several books, including Accounting for Value, which we'll speak about today. And how does the book relate to Radai's quality rating? At Radai, we use a three-part framework for evaluating the quality of a company. It's based on business, people and financials. Penban's book is really at the intersection between business and financials. By evaluating the financials using his framework, we get a better understanding of how the business really creates value. Accounting for Value was first published by Columbia University Press in 2011, and we are delighted to have its author on the show today. Here comes our conversation with Stephen Penman. Hello, Stephen, and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, wonderful to be here and spend some time with you. It's an honor to have you on. And Martin and I, we are in the studio in Stockholm. And where are we reaching you today? Well, good. usually I'm in uh, New York because I'm at Columbia University. But at the moment I'm at, uh, in Milano, uh, where I'm visiting for three months at Bocconi University, as I do, uh, as I've done for the last three years. Very pleasant place to be. Uh, very nice being here. I like my colleagues at, um, at Columbia, but uh, they're all very predictable, as, as I'm sure I am. And it's nice to have a change, a different set of colleagues. And you are one of the world's most seasoned and accomplished professors in accounting. So I'm curious to hear, how, how did this all begin? Well, I just fell into it, okay? And I'm quite, quite no. No, you don't, you don't grow up thinking you're going, to, you're going to be an accountant, and particularly an academic accountant. Now, what is that? Maybe you think about being a firefighter, but uh, I never heard of academic accounting. So uh, I guess the answer is it's the usual thing. I go to university. I grew up in Australia, University of Queensland in Brisbane, and I ran into a professor who said, hey, read this, read that. He'd got a PhD in the US, uh, and the stuff started to grab me. And uh, I've developed uh, immediately a real interest in it. He took me under his wings, uh, and uh, that interest has been sustained uh, even into my advanced years. It's fascinating what a good teacher can can bring in life for someone. Yes, I think that's the case. You know, one of the wonderful things about being a professor is bringing that to others, seeing the light get turned on. You know, uh, uh, people, and and you have a comparative advantage because um, students tend to think, "Oh, accounting, it's boring. Okay, it's just compliance." Uh, but if you can show them actually how it works and what you can extract from it. And the light goes on, particularly if they're investors, okay? And that's p- partly the, uh, the uh, reason for this book, to, re- to, to turn that light on. And that's very satisfying as a, as a teacher. 
So today we're going to speak about accounting for value. Uh, and if I were to summarize the main idea of your book for someone who hasn't read it, I would say that it tries to introduce accounting as an anchor in equity valuation. How would you go about summarizing the book for someone who hasn't read it? Well, I think the first thing to say to someone is, uh, even though as value investors, and I, and I write this book from the point of view of a value and fundamental investor, which I know you guys are very interested in, um, uh, uh, even though we say you know, that we have the mantra, price is different from value, and you've got to discover value, the first thing to recognize is you don't do valuation, okay? Valuation models don't work. We teach them in business school, discounted cash flow analysis, residual income, but they do not work. And the reason they don't work is there's just too much speculation, too much guessing in the models. And I think these days, most people on the buy side realize that. They don't, they don't, uh, they don't do valuation. And so the question is, uh, what can you do differently? And so um, the book takes the view that, um, well, it's in the title, which is somewhat a mysterious title, Accounting for Value. Well, what the heck is that? Okay. It says what you do is, first of all, you try to do some accounting to actually do some accounting to, to get um, a hold of the value, some, some aspects of the valuation. And um, uh, you take that to uh, challenge the market price. Um, uh, we'll maybe talk a little bit later about how, how that happens. Uh, but um, accounting, bringing accounting into it is, is very important because what we're doing is we're, buy, we're buying a, a stock or a share in dollar terms or kroner terms, okay? And we need to understand the business very thoroughly, but we need to get that understanding of the business into dollar terms or kroner terms so that then we can relate it to the market price. And that's what accounting does, is it translates the business and your understanding of the business into, uh, into monetary terms. From there, you can go to, to think about how I can challenge the market price. Uh, so that's, that, that's the basics. So that's why accounting is, is central here. You've got to do some accounting um, to actually get hold of it. Um, you just can't forecast future cash flows Get, guess at a discount rate, a cost of capital, guess at a long-term growth rate and pretend you're getting somewhere because you're not getting somewhere. So it, it recasts the, whole, the, the whole, whole view of how you go about it. And we'll go deeper into the book and many of those aspects a bit later. But first, uh, I'm curious to hear a bit more about how it was to write the book. And you mentioned some of the motivations behind writing it, but also how did you decide to structure the book, for example, would be interesting to hear. Yeah, um, well, it, it really begins in the classroom. Um, you know, we, as, as professors, we do our research and we go in the classroom. The classroom is the first place where you, you test um, the standard knowledge. And um, I realized in the classroom, teaching the standard valuation, valuation models, I realized it doesn't work. The idea in the classroom, it forces that academics can be a bit too... Um, uh, aloof uh, in classroom forces you to be uh, very, very practical. What works and what doesn't work. Okay, so so that was the instigation, and that I think is the basis. Then sort of carrying those idea practice. So the idea that I realised the whole thing needs a rethink, and at least uh, and this uh, this is my 
this is my rethink. One, the, the central idea is, yes, you've got to do some accounting, okay? That's where you start. In valuing a business, actually accounting is not the highest priority. You've really got to understand the business. Mm -hmm. Whether that's a business, you should be uh, uh, understand its strategy, its business model um, uh, very thoroughly. And um, But the second order of business is um, uh, you've got to understand the accounting. And to do that, you've got to understand how you translate the business into numbers, okay? Is revenues as a measure, that's probably, is that a good measure? And what, what then turns up is, well, what's good accounting? Mm -hmm. And what's bad accounting? And so as an ac academic accountant, as I see, our core measure is to think about, hey, what's good accounting and what's bad accounting? You do that from the point of view of what it gives you in practice. It delivers when you want to use it. And from my point of view, it's accounting for the investors. So that's that, that's all wrapped up in, I guess, the, the mission of, a, of an accounting academic. What's good accounting? In our case, what's good accounting for, uh, for dealing with uh, equity investing? And on that topic, you speak in the book about the pros and cons of mark-to-market versus fair value accounting. Uh, can you elaborate a bit on this topic? Yes. Um, fair value accounting says, let me estimate all the future customers I'm going to get and all the future cash flows. Let me discount them to the present and let me put it in the balance sheet. Okay. Now, if there's a market price out there for what I'm accounting for, I can uh, just use the market price. But one of the, one of the uh, problems here is, there's two, a number of problems. First of all, estimating fair values, what we call level three fair values, is a very difficult task. It's really guessing, okay? It's speculation, okay, about the future. Here's what I think uh, the future is going to be. And you put it in the balance sheet. If you use market prices, you run a real problem because if the assets you're valuing are overvalued in the market, you're putting overvaluation into your accounting. Mm -hmm. The big example of that was um, uh, Enron with its mark-to-market accounting, but it just before the financial crisis, where all these available for sale securities and the, 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 the package mortgage-backed securities were bought in uh, during a real estate bubble, okay? They came into banks' balance sheets, they made them look healthy, but the whole thing crashed, okay? And those balance sheets crashed in a matter of months. So I see that as very dangerous accounting from the point of view of, uh, of investor. My view is that good old-fashioned, what they call historical cost accounting, even though this, it needs to be improved, has the basic principle you don't recognize earnings until you get a customer. Uh, that's called the realization principle. And that's very safe accounting. Your balance sheet is not a speculative balance sheet about what might happen that can crash on you. And by the way, when it crashes, the only thing time you find out about risk is after you've crashed, after it's crashed. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea is conservative, conservative accounting, which says, Oh, you have to get a customer before I recognize earnings and add to the balance sheet. I think that's, that, that's, the, uh, that's the objective of fair value accounting. Now, there are times when it's relevant. If you've got a trading portfolio, okay, and you're trading on the market price, uh, your, your wealth is one-to-one -one with the market price. So for a trading portfolio, it works quite well. 
But for most business enterprises, the value is added is comes from uh, buying well in input markets and selling at a higher price in output markets. The arbitrage is between input prices and output prices. That's the realization principle, okay? Um, you don't make money from market prices. You make money from having a technology which buys low and sells high in your business model. And that's what you need to pick up. And fair value accounting doesn't do that. So this distinction between speculation and valuation is a recurring theme throughout the book. Uh, and you introduce a framework for this. Uh, can you talk a bit more about this framework and your thoughts behind it? Yes. Um, I think it's a very basic principle in, uh, in investing. Um, the market price, which you're thinking about buying at that price, is speculative. It builds in, it builds in um, the market speculates about the future, as it should. Okay, the price should be based on the expectation of what you should get out of it. Um, but we've got to recognize that's speculative. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we want to do is to say, um, uh, we want to challenge that speculation. And that speculation usually is a speculation about future growth. So that mantra says, listen, separate speculation from what you know. First, understand what you know. Okay. And that's where the accounting comes in. Okay, I can see the current balance sheet. I can see the revenues. I can see the current earnings. I can see the profit margins. Okay, that's what I know. Of course, it has to be good accounting mm -hmm. uh, to make sure you know that the accountants got it right. You can speculate about that you're going to have future sales, but um, here's what you're currently. So you might ask, well, here for... Um, Uh, Nvidia, Nvidia. Here uh, is the speculation in the market price about uh, the future earnings. Let me first of all look at the current sales and the current profits. Okay, and then ask me what would it have to do to get to the future sales and the future earnings that are in the market price, and then I can really start to think about it. Okay, and then I can think about challenging the speculation. But first of all, I, I base on what I know, and that actually gives me a valuation. The book we call a no-growth valuation, okay? And then you separate that from the market price to isolate the speculation of the market price. And then you challenge that. Can can um, very speculative co company, uh, Tesla a few years ago, a very high price, okay? Well, what do I have to do to actually get to that high price? I can actually ac do accounting and pro forma to see that and ask, well, from my knowledge of the business, is that feasible? Or well, I'm going to say, uh, well, not today, Mrs. Murphy, I don't want to buy, okay? And would you say that speculation is always a part of equity valuation or is and is it sometimes a necessary evil? Uh, I don't think I'd use the term necessary evil. It's always part of valuation, yes. The, the, the prices are based on the expectation of what you're going to get in the future, okay? Cash flows or earnings, let's say, okay? Um, uh, so it's a necessary part. So you um, you have to deal with that. So the book was approach of how to deal with that. Uh, so, but separating this out and understanding what part of the market price can be justified by what you see now, okay, which you anchor on, and the anchoring here is the accounting, you see, and uh, uh, then I can identify uh, what that speculation is and uh, whether I want to pay for that. So. 
in the framework, investing comes down to uh, doing an analysis which challenges the speculative part of the prices, okay? That's which I cannot account for. Uh, so, so now it's not a, not an evil. You've got to buy speculation. You know, uh, the famous um, traditional value investor was Benjamin Graham. He was a professor at Columbia and uh, mentor to Warren Buffett. And he wrote, uh, and by the way, he came into uh, value investing because of the 1920s when uh, uh, there was huge write-ups of assets, fair value accounting, we call it now, in a boom time. And the whole damn thing crashed in October 29. And then he would say, he would say, um, listen, um, I'm not going to buy growth. Any growth is speculative. It can be competed away uh, unless you have a durable competitive advantage, one of those firms with a moat around it, okay? I'm not going to buy it. I'll only buy firms where the market price is, is, uh, is less than the price which I can account for um, uh, as a no, with no growth. And in those days, you could find those companies, particularly in the 1930s and the 1940s, early 1950s. Now, he was criticized by Fisher and others saying, well, he wouldn't have bought any of the great growth companies of the, uh, of the 20th century. He wouldn't have bought uh, IBM, okay? He wouldn't have bought the, 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 uh, the, the great growth companies. Um, you've got to deal with growth. And actually more so now because a higher proportion of the valuations are in the growth expectations of, uh, of your Apples, your Microsofts, your Facebooks and so on. Okay, So you have to work out a way how to buy growth. And that's really what the book is, that's central to the book too. How do I think about buying growth? But separating, understanding what is the speculation about growth? Turning the problem around so you say, oh, I don't do a valuation model and and plug in a growth rate, okay, assume 5%, mm -hmm. um, which is just building speculation is. Now, I turned around and say, uh, I um, asked the market, what's its valuation on growth? And after all, um, after all, all you have to do as an investor is buy or sell or hold, or hold I guess. Um, the onus is not, not on you to come up with a valuation. All is the onus on you to say is, hey, that value of speculation in the market price, it's too high for me. I cannot account for it. I cannot justify it. I won't buy today. Well, it may be cheap. I think some of our listeners recognize uh, kind of the discussion that we're having from a book called Expectations Investing by Michael Moboson that we have had on in, in episode number 10 here. Uh, you are both, uh, he's been an adjunct professor of Columbia Business School for a long time. So I, I guess you know him and you have discussed this. Or Yes, actually, that's, that, that's very much the origins of this. It's actually a guy by Al Rappaport at Northwestern University, who was, uh, was uh, Boston's uh, student uh, professor, I believe, and they wrote the, the book about it. So he does exactly the same way. He turns it around, okay? I don't do valuation. I ask... I ask what is implicit in the market price. Now, what he does, he says, what is the expected return from buying at the market price, okay, which requires him to put in a growth rate. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's very, I'm very uneasy with that. Um, uh, I'd rather say, let me put my hurdle rate in, okay. Yes, I need 8% to the best in this stock because I've done a real risk profile on it, or I need 10%. 
and then reverse engineer. It's a reverse engineering exercise, reverse engineering to get other markets evaluation of the growth. Uh, so, but the spirit of it is is there with Rappaport and Robertson. Yes, mm-hmm. he's a good guy, very good guy. And a tool or one of the core concepts of the book is really residual income, and that is a way of determining what growth adds value. Uh, could you describe this concept for our listeners? Yes, uh, residual income is gives you the same valuation as a residual income is based on what you see in the financial statements, the balance sheet and the income statement, whereas discounted cash flow analysis is based on what you see in the the cash flow statements. Okay. So, so it shifts the orientation to those accrual accounting statements. Here's my balance sheet and here's my income statement. And I start with the balance sheet and provide it's good accounting. You, you sort of anchor on that balance sheet. Then you ask how much value am I going to add to it through um, the earnings that are going to be added to the balance sheet in the future. But residual earnings says, hey, you only add value if you cover your cost of capital. So residual earnings is the earnings minus your book value with a charge for the cost of capital. Your book value, of course, is your net assets, assets minus liability. So you only add value when you cover your cost of capital. Uh, so if, in fact, uh, let's say your return on equity uh, is uh, 15% and your required return is um, 10%, then you see added value, okay? You're going to earn more on book value then uh, it's uh, required at the 10% required return. Now, the advantage of it has advantages in the sense also that in discounted cash flow analysis, a lot of the value comes from what you estimate a long way out, okay? Not in immediate short-term years. Um, and what you see for a long way out is very, very speculative, okay? It's a long-run growth rate. Residual income brings much more of the valuation forward in time. First of all, you have a balance sheet. And there's value in the balance sheet. And secondly, you have a good indication of the short term, uh, the, the short term, what the earnings are now, what's likely to be next year and possibly the future year. And you see that in practice with analysts. Analysts do forecast cash flows, but usually they forecast earnings. What's earnings going to be next year? What's going to be next year? I'll bring my information to that. So it's bringing that information into the valuation. And there's a lot of accounting behind the accrual accounting just is much better value added measure than than free cash flow. And a good illustration of that is a number of firms which are in the book. Uh, you can have a lot of free ca- a lot of cash flow from operations, but if you're doing a lot of investing, uh, like Walmart did for many years, your free cash flow is negative. Walmart's free cash flow was negative for about 30 years. Um, you can't do evaluation with negative free cash flow. Um, whereas with residual income, you don't get into that. Uh, you, you don't get it unless the firm is making extreme losses. In, in the book, you even write that using free cash flow in valuation is not only odd, it's perverse. It's perverse, yes. Free cash flow is cash flow from operations minus investment, cash investment. So if you're investing a lot, your free cash flow is lower. If you sell off your investment, no, Typically, we think you make investments to add value, but free cash flow says you lose value because you subtract it. And if you liquidate your investments, you you generate free cash flow. I think that the term perverse is not too strong. Okay, <laughs> it's not a good hey, it's not good accounting for value. 
we need to understand what are my investments in the balance sheet and how I'm adding value to that balance sheet by selling the customers versus uh, the expenses incurred in the income statement. It makes all, it might make, make very, very straightforward sense. And I think most people on the buyer side, at least the ones that I correspond with, see this. Okay, they don't need this discount of cash flow analysis. The sell side uses it, okay, because when they have to value an IPO, they know it's overvalued, okay. They have to do due diligence to justify the valuation. You want a bad valuation model, okay. Put in any discount rate and a growth rate, you can get there. Mm -hmm. And speaking about adding value, something we have seen repeated throughout history and also uh, in the last years when, when money has been almost free is that companies put on a lot of leverage. Maybe you can explain a bit more your thinking, how investors should see leverage. Well, the, I think the first, uh, the first uh, so operational chapter after, in the book after uh, bringing out the ideas is uh, on leverage. And it takes the, uh, it takes the, um, the basic value investors approaches. Um, beware of leverage. Leverage is risky. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's the first thing you look at. Okay. Um, and a lot of investors re re value, but refuse to buy leverage firms. Okay. Um, so, uh, and it also says there's actually a danger in leverage with the accounting numbers. Because if you have a highly levered firm, leverage increases the return on equity, the ROE. Okay, but leverage typically doesn't add value. Just issuing bonds doesn't add value, but increases your ROE. A stock repurchase typically does not create value unless you're buying back your stock cheap, but increases earnings per share. Leverage increases earnings growth. Earnings growth because you're taking on more risk, you don't want to buy it. So that's I think that's the first lesson is to ask whether you really want to buy the leverage. Now, if you think the firm is cheap, and I tell you the firm without leverage, the unlevered firm, is cheap, maybe you want to buy the leverage because the, 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 the leverage will lever up your return. Just as an investor, if you see a, a good alpha, you might go out and borrow and lever up. So I think leverage is the first thing to address. And for aspiring invest investors, uh, which is a description I believe suits several of our listeners, what would be your advice on how to improve your investment process? Read the book, I guess. <laughs> no, um, uh, just just step back. Uh, take in your education, because your education is good. Take in your, your business school education. Take in your way to analyze strategy in the businesses, because uh, that comes first understanding the business and what they're doing and what alternatively they could be doing. Um, but then um, uh, do the rethink in the book. Don't think, don't pretend you can do get one of those spreadsheets you're developing classes, plot out the revenues, the expenses, and plug in a growth rate to take you out to infinity, okay? Um, rethink it. Um, uh, you don't do valuation. You ask, how can I account? Can I account for the valuation of the market price? Uh, if I can't, I don't want to buy. Maybe I can. I can um, find a cheap stock. Now, in that regard, I think I'd say, listen, it's not easy. Okay. When I went to the University of Chicago, I had wonderful professors, Eugene Farmer, Merton Miller, and the doctor of the day was, was um, efficient markets. 
it's all efficient. I can remember one professor actually saying to me, a little PhD student, Steve, why are you studying accounting? All the information's in the market price, okay? Now, that's sort of stupid, okay? Because unless someone does the accounting, uh, how does it get into the market price? But, um, but it's good to keep in mind that it's not easy. And very often you go through analysis and say, look, the price looks reasonable, okay? Uh, and what I'm trying to say here is don't think about this as shooting the moon to looking for that thing that's going to make, make you instantly rich. You might find it, okay? Do it in a sense of, I guess, what we call a pre preservation of capital. The most important thing is to not to get into stocks where you're going to take a big hit. Mm -hmm. um, that's called the defensive investor, okay, rather than the, the positive active investor. Um, I think this is very much in the doctrine of Char Charlie Munger uh, espouses this doctrine. The worst thing, a gradual appreciation of a good investment over time really gets you there, okay, uh, best, rather than finding the one that will shoot the lights out. Um, but if you, if you accumulate through the benefits of compound interest, but you get hit, that's a big, that's a big problem. A loss of 100% takes a long time to recover from. So I would say adopt that attitude. Investing is very much about an attitude, okay? Uh, people are speculators, well, best of luck, okay? A good investor has this idea of being conservative, okay? And so I think that mentality is the best way of, uh, best way of approaching it. Now, maybe you might be lucky and find one, okay? But don't go on the presumption that's how you're going to make your money. Something that, that we often talk about is finding your edge as an investor. And in one part of your book, you, you talk about uh, that investment edge may come from fresh information. But you believe that with the insider trading rules, most of an analyst edge will come from the analysis and not the information in itself. Uh, here in Investing by the Books, we have spoken to Avner Mandelman twice. Maybe you're familiar with him. I mean, he's saying that investors should go out in the real world and try to sleuth, as he called it, like scuttlebutt approach for and find exclusive information. So what are your thoughts? on? I, I can't contradict what he's, what he's saying. No, I, I, maybe I should go back and look at that passage and see, see that it's redrafted. Uh, it needs redrafting. No, the, um, the point is with public information, if that's what you have, um, you're going to get your edge through um, through uh, analysis, a better analysis. And that's what the book is designed to, to bring you to. Information is gold. That's the first order, okay? You get information. That, he, he's right. Now, in the old days, uh, value investors like Peter Lynch um, would, would put on the heavy boots and pound the streets and look at store, watch stores and see if people come out with bulging shopping bags, okay? Um, uh, today we call it uh, alternative data, okay? It's not in the public records, but you may want to scrape some sat satellites or scrape this and scrape that, okay, to come up with the information. You may want to go behind the revenues. You start with the revenues in the financial statements and say, let me go behind this. Uh, what's P and what's Q? What's price and what's quantity? What's Rx, okay? Let me dig deeper. Where is it coming from? Uh, it's not uh, very often not in the disclosures. It's not in the segment information. So yes, yes, uh, that is very important. Information first, okay, 
and then once you get your information, then how you actually pull that information together in a good, systematic, reliable way, that's where uh, uh, an additional edge. And in chapter nine of Accounting for Value, uh, you present the results of different trading strategies based on what you call accounting arbitrage. Uh, They show that there seems to be advantages that can be gained for people that can correctly interpret accounting information. What is your view on these strategies today, given that the studies were collected a few years ago? Yes, uh, well, accounting arbitrage usually, I mean, generally, the whole thing, uh, accounting arbitrage, you you can talk about it in two senses. One is just following this discipline of having accounting a base approach to the whole thing, okay, and getting your edge that way. Accounting arbitrage, quote, unquote, is usually about understanding problems in the accounting, okay, which the market doesn't see. So, for example, uh, a press release comes out and it says earnings per share is up, okay? Investors are fixated on the bottom line numbers and they don't make the effort to go into the account and say, where did it come from, okay? Actually digging into the accounting and understanding what's there in uh, better than the average investor who's just basically betting on the, uh, taking the bottom line Uh, that's accounting arbitrage. The other aspect of it is um, is just look understanding what whether it's bad accounting. Okay, in the days when we had no stock option accounting, this was a nice one. Okay, they didn't include the cost of stock options. It's still a nice nice one because the IFRS and the FASB uh, they use what they call grant date accounting, optional grant date, and don't settle that about how much the employees take from him when they exercise their options. So dealing, trading on the basis of bad accounting and seeing accounting in the market price based on the accounting that's there rather than what is better accounting, that's a second aspect of accounting arbitrage. Um, I think there are opportunities still there, okay, particularly on the first aspect of understanding what accounting is telling you that the average investor does not understand. Mm -hmm. But what happens, as you say, it tends to go away Mm -hmm. once it gets well known. A good example of that was the so-called accrual anomaly. If you you bought stocks on on accruals versus cash flows, you made profits. It's been, uh, and this was uh, uh, reported by a fellow by name Richard Sloan, who's now USC, um, and that seemed to be a profitable strategy for a number of years. It's gone away, okay? It's gone away because those papers have been widely published. And anyone doing this accounting arbitrage, they're onto it very quickly. So it does go away, okay? That was kind of my follow-up questions with accounting knowledge improving among investors. Do you think these strategies will continue to be a viable opportunity? Perhaps, of course, not the, the same strategies, but the, the strategies as a whole. Yeah, I mean the end point in this is uh, the end point in this is uh, we just get efficient markets, right? <laughs> Once, well, first of all, we get we get efficient markets. People discover these things and they go away. Not everyone does, but they, you've got the sophisticated investors out there who really understand this, and there are shops out there who really do the deep dive accounting analysis. Okay, they trade at the mar- mar- margin and force the price to uh, the appropriate value. However, uh, uh, in some sense, it's sort of, I, I don't know, you've got an endeavor in the background. An idea in the background here is 
let's try to improve the accounting, okay? There are things that are good about our standard accounting we have, but there are things that are bad about it. And the idea that you can exploit the accounting means let's do better accounting. So a lot of my mission, and I talk to people at the boards, okay, I write policy pieces on, on accounting issues, goodwill accounting, intangible asset accounting, okay, which they're wrestling at the moment uh, to get better accounting. And once you get better accounting, that's going to make the market more efficient. So, um, yes, but, you know, there is, um, I see those as noble objectives um, that, we need good capital markets for efficient allocation of capital to companies, okay? And actually, if you allocate allocate to your capital to a company whose price is way in the stratosphere, that's not a good allocation. And that's based because there's not good accounting there for intangible assets, for example. Uh, that's a dislocation of the economy. We get better economies because we have better accounting. So... Um, uh, the, the, the endeavor here is not entirely to make money, or go, though it's a way of thinking about it as a good value investor, but ultimately there's social value, if you want to put it that way, okay? The ESG aspects, okay? The climate aspects. These are, how do they, how do they help a behavior investor if you don't have good reporting about it? And we do not. When we speak about this now, we are thinking from we're coming from an active investor's point of view, but we also know that there's more and more passive capital who is not really looking at the accounting at all. Uh, what, what what is your view on that? Being a passive value is uh, is dangerous. Okay, um, to start with, uh, there's a famous quote. It's in the book by uh, John Maynard Keynes. He, like Benjamin Graham, lost a lot of money in the 1920s, okay? And he turned around and became a very strong fundamental investor and did very, very well. And uh, he came, there's a quote there, I won't have the exact words for you, but he says, look, to think that buying a whole bunch of stocks about which you know nothing is better than buying a few selected stocks which you know something, you've done your homework, seems to be a travesty investing. Um, you've got to look into it. And one thing that the book suggests is, yes, you may be an investor who, um, who uh, wants to be, you want to take part in the, the rewards of the wealth that, um, that corporations generate. You want to buy stocks. But maybe you should do a little bit of homework. Yes, buy the index, buy the S&P 500, but maybe just with a little bit of education, run through and say, oh, I don't want that one. Oh, I don't want this one. Okay. Um, that's value investing. Okay. Uh, passive investing is dangerous, as we well have seen. Okay. And, you know, the drawdowns on the market portfolio have been pretty hefty at times. Think about 2008, even 2022. So, um uh, so that's that's the way I think about it. Now, now the, the one thing about this whole notion is very interesting because if, in fact, we get very good accounting and we get very good investing and everyone got, has the, the discipline, then the market becomes efficient and then the passive investor has a free ride, okay? But the trouble is if everyone takes the free ride, then it all gets get blown up again, okay? Someone's got to do it. And there will be a lot of opportunities for the active investors. 
That's right. That's right. So, so the active investor, um, see, see, the value investor sees the issue as trading against other investors. Okay. Uh, here's what they think. And the idea you separate out what value they're putting on speculation, here's how the average investor thinks. Do I think differently? Okay. Um, that's the question. And you and these are the ones you're training about. That is that's in Graham, that's in Buffett. Buffett with these the markets driven by fear and overexcitement and all these sorts of things. Um, they were his terms, the modern behavioral finance people try to bring more concrete to to that. Well, they're functionally fixated on on earnings. They 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 uh don't sell losses, they uh, get optimistic, they have over-enthusiasm, they're herds, they go with the herd, okay? Um, so they bring more sophistication to this, uh, but I think that's um, that's what you're looking out for. So with this said, and with all your deep expertise in accounting and valuation of companies, how do you invest your own money? Well, I think I pretty much follow the book, okay? Now, the book is... Um, the book, Accounting for Value book, which you're talking about at the moment, is um, it's all more of a thought book, okay, for people to get the ideas. I have a, I have a um, uh, earlier book, which is a textbook, okay, where a lot of the details about how you do this is in there, and I follow that. Now that book is um, I've just finished a new book, okay, called Accounting for Value: Colon um, a fun. A, Fundamental analysis for the active investor, okay, which sort of bring those two books together. And in a short answer to your question is, I understand the business, and I will not buy businesses that I don't understand. Don't understand, okay. I actually don't understand artificial intelligence and the products are coming out and what the prospects are and how that's all going to pan out. I read casually, but no, no, I'm too old to get into that, okay. Um, so, um, but if I understand it and I understand, then I can bring this analysis to it in this disciplined way. That's how that's how I approach it, and that's how I uh, advise in, in, in some consulting. That's how I advise. I've just written a paper called on safe equities that do analysis to understand safe equities, equities that are reasonably reasonably safe. We used to call them blue chips, and find that actually an allocation between the market portfolio and these safe ex- equities is a safer investor than the 60-40 stock bonds, standard 60-40 stock bond splits. Because as we've seen in 2022 and 2023, bonds can really take a hit and are not are no real protection. So um, so these are these are the uh, the refinements I get into. Um, but I would say I do it a lot just to, as curiosity, okay, testing ideas. And sometimes I do it to say, okay, it didn't work out. And when it didn't work out because there was new news which no one could have anticipated, that's okay. If it comes out and comes out and there's new news, the stock t- takes a hit. And I say, oh my goodness, I should have known that. Okay, that's when I have a bad night. Okay, <laughs> so information is gold. How you get that information, how you pull it together to do that, that's accounting for value. It's fascinating what the market can teach you every day, uh, even if you've been in it for a long time. Things can teach you every day, but the important thing is uh, you shouldn't be exposed to those things you can anticipate. 
So how big is your portfolio? Like how many stocks do you have, for example? Um, I have, uh, I probably have a hundred stocks. Okay. Some of them are going, let me try, let me, I, this one I think about, let me try. And usually um, it, it pays off well. Okay. Now this is accumulation over time. Typically when I get a stock, I tend to be a long-term investor. I don't do this full time. I don't monitor it every day, but a lot of it is to learn from. Okay. Uh, but um, it, it's uh, it, it's done very well. But um, I do it as an intellectual activity. I do it to, you know, I guess save every time or pass it on to your kids, whatever you do, I pass it on to charity. Okay. Uh, but um, I like it. I really do like it. I think this is a good segue over to your your role as a professor in accounting and. I was I was curious about your your role as uh, as an investor and how much sp- time you spend on that versus your your role as a professor and also how do you allocate time there? Well, the things that co-mingle, I guess that re- research is primary. Okay, coming up with ideas and new research to answer. Um, I have a paper now which is uh, on buying PE ratios. Uh, people see that you're buying. I'm doing a lot of work on the analysis of risk risk from financial statements. People say, I'm buying PE ratios, I'm buying growth, okay? Because um, it's based on expected growth, but what they don't realize is you're buying growth, but the old mantra, growth is risky, so you've got to discount for the risk. So working out ways to think about how you discount for the risk of growth, okay? And bring the analysis. Um, so I have papers which are, you might say, fill up academic journals. Mm-hmm and papers that then go to to practitioner journals. So that's on the research side. Some of the practice that comes from class, they go, we go through exercise and something dawns on me. Um, so that combines with the teaching as, as, so that, as, does, um, uh, as does the investing. An idea comes up, I think about an idea in class, and we discuss this, she says, well, let me go and think about that, and that may be helpful with my, uh, you know, that leading to my investing. Um, Dissemination and communication is very important, okay? So uh, it, dissemination to um, in the classroom, dissemination through books like Accounting for Value and the new book, uh, that's very important. That's the role. Asset allocation of time, it's just all commingled. Um, I think about it all the time, okay? I don't play golf. Um, I do surf, okay? So if the surf's up, I'm out there. Um, but... Um, I think about it a lot of the time, so that's it's my hobby. Sometimes when you when you do something else like surfing, that's that's when the real ideas happen, right? It does. Yes, that's right. I find myself actually getting on a plane and sitting on a plane, uh, isolated there, start reading. Ideas come there. Um, it's an interesting question because students ask, ask me, PhD students, how do you become creative? How do you get ideas? And I would say, I said. Actually, I don't know, okay? Obviously, you've got to be well-read, okay, uh, about what's going on. But it's a, cu- it's a curious business. And actually going to the surf, and the surf's up, and you catch a few waves, man, that really stimulates the brain cells. Yeah, some, someone said that uh, creativity comes out of boredom. Yes, I guess that's, that could be the case. Um, I'm never bored. That's the trouble I'm... I guess curiosity is a very necessary ingredient, okay? And by the way, there's so many unanswered questions, particularly in accounting. Accounting is very unexplored. You ask me first up, you know, 
what, what pulls me into this? I think it's a very unexplored area. What you can get out of accounting, particularly if you do good accounting and good accounting, is actually very, very rich, I found out. Uh, the, the common impression, though, is boring, okay? Don't, uh, it's just compliance with rules and regulations. It's bookkeeping. No, it's not that. It has a whole structure to it. It has an old insight to it uh, that you can, uh, you can employ, employ. It's a way of thinking, actually. It's a way of thinking about valuation. So, uh, uh, but it's discounted in society, unfortunately. You know, I th I'm of the opinion that uh, functioning market economies, free enterprise economies, um, there's very important ingredients. First of all, you've got to have property rights, okay? Uh, you've got to have courts to enforce those property rights and hold those property rights. Otherwise, no one will try to make money and, and create growth and wealth. But the third thing is good accounting systems. I think even communist governments need good accounting systems, ticked on the cost of, on the manufacturing side, which they never had. Um, uh, so uh, if you don't have good accounting systems, uh, our governments, they're terrible accounting systems. It's just budget cash flows, um, no balance sheet, no value-added statement, no accrual accounting, and you get the terrible things where the po politicians think borrowing debt is revenue. Uh, it's sort of uh, thinking in these t accounting terms is uh, I, I think it's 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 something that's not recognised the importance of accounting. Uh, so that's um, that's something that spurs me on, I guess. And to continue on that topic, you mentioned in the book how over the past decades accounting firms have delegated their thinking to regulators. So. Do you think industry professionals should be more involved in pushing changes to the accounting standards? Yes, I, I most certainly do. I mean, it gets me a bit. I mean, when I was young, uh, as a PhD student, as a young professor at Berkeley, the leaders in the accounting professions uh, were, were thinkers. Okay, They wrote papers in journals about this is how we think lease accounting should be done. This is how we think pension accounting should be done. Okay. Leonard Spacek, who was the founder of Arthur Anderson, he was a thinker, and he, de he developed that firm as thinking about what is good accounting. Arthur Anderson threw all that out, okay? And most of the firms don't do that. They're into consulting. Um, they're into compliance. We're going to leave, they say, we're going to leave the standard setting or the ideas to the bureaucracies the IASB and the FASB, and they no longer think about it. And I think that's a real shame because people on the ground are the best one uh, at the coal service are the best ones to think about what's good accounting. I talk uh, occasionally to the main gurus in the, in the big four accounting firms, okay? And I tell you, without mentioning any names or firms, I'm really disappointing of their inability to think conceptually about what's good accounting, okay? They're technical gurus now. Well, I think you can let your client get away with this and still stay within the uh, still stay within the within the standards, okay? That is very, very, very disappointing. I think we've seen a lot of professions, uh, the doctors, I don't think they're as close to your body as they used to be. Mm -hmm. That's just a speculation. But uh, uh, so, so I, I'm worried about that. A profession, professionals should take on a different, a different view of things. Mm -hmm.
and should be leading it. And from your point as a professor, uh, is there something you think that the finance industry misunderstands or lacks in terms of accounting knowledge and or application? I, th- I think so, yes. Um, particularly, uh, uh, I think so. Um, the finance industry, of course, is a very broad thing. And we've got to distinguish the sell side from the buy side. The buy side is more more focused because their money is on the line because um, some of them actually honor their fiduciary duty uh, to their to their investors and, and behave well. Um, but I even think on the buy side, this, we see a growing growing um, need for it. You know, after the financial crisis, Columbia, before the financial crisis, uh, we had, I think, five or six courses or sections of courses on on accounting for all these fancy derivatives, okay? Um, teaching students, you know, how to how to price the call feature on a on a mortgage, or how to how to provide a, uh, uh, a CDS with different positions and so on. Sent them downtown, and the whole thing crashed. Okay, uh, the students didn't get into you know, the counterparty risk, all that sort of thing. Okay, and we we here at Columbia more of a demand from the sell side, from your Morgan Stanley's and so on. We want the students to have some good accounting, okay? Um, and I think the, 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 the demand is uh, demand is growing for that, the realisation that, yeah, again, it's, it grounds you, it grounds you, if you have good accounting. So, um, yes and no. And let's say you worked with equity research and had full freedom in structuring your writings. How would you structure a typical research report? I think I have structured it up, up to my current ability, okay? I hope this is an ongoing, ongoing exercise. If I talk to uh, uh, investors, and I spent just before the pandemic, I spent quite a bit of time in Hangzhou in China for a, a quite large uh, investment fund. Uh, who were basically invested in commodities and macro base in developing their equity research. And this is the basic paradigm I, I, I lay out. Um, so um, I think I got that in my head. My only, only thing, it, it sort of never, fish, never finished. It's sort of continuing an, a continuing endeavor. But that's what I, uh, uh, and th- but there's certain things I lay out. Listen, don't think you know the cost of capital. Um, and plug that in. Um, there's a dirty little, dirty little secret in academic finance that we've been chasing the cost of capital, the required return or the expected return for ever since Markovich, okay, in 1955. It's called asset pricing and asset pricing theory, building factor models, uh, and so on. The dirty little secret is despite five Nobel Prizes for the effort, we don't know what the cost of capital is and how to calculate it. Mm. So again, separate what you know from what you don't know. Don't pretend you know that one. Okay. So these are these are sort of these are sort of the that that sets you that sets you in um, in motion. Say, so, well, how uh, obviously there's risk. I've got to give some idea of risk. How do I get hold of that? That is my current research is understanding how you get an indication of risk. Uh, from financial statement data and the alternative data, okay? And it may not give you, it may not tell you that the cost of capital is 
8.7 versus 8.3%, um, but at least puts it into, it puts you into particular risk classes. In my mind, this idea of chasing the cost of capital is a fool's errand. Risk is so complex. You think of the risk the firms face. There's obviously the risk from the demand side. There's the supply shocks. There's the risk from suppliers. There's regulation risk. There's country risk. Uh, there's risk all over the place. To think that you can funnel this down into one number, it's 8.3, not 8.7. It sort of stretches the imagination. Okay, So again, understand what you know and what you don't know and don't pretend you know the cost of capital. Now you can put in your own hurdle rate. Okay. And another issue is, of course, we all have different costs of capital because they have different attitudes towards risk. I can remember in uh, the financial crisis teaching the class, Warren Buffett came out in a piece in the, in the New York Times saying um, the S&P had dropped down to 667. Okay. Uh, now's time to buy stocks. They're cheap. So I took it into class and said, students, are you buying? No one said yes even though they had some very good instruction in class about how to do it. Um, and I said, why? Well, Professor, look, we're in a financial crisis. The banks are probably not going to hire MBAs, okay, in the next year. We're going to have trouble getting a job. We have student debt up to the ceiling. We're running away from risk. We can't take on this risk. Who knows what's going to happen? The world could go to hell. Very risk-averse. And they send it, send it on me, which a good student does, turns it on me and says, uh, Professor, are you buying? Well, actually, yes. I have very little debt. Actually, my, uh, I've got a low interest mortgage, uh, on the, but it's almost paid off. And, you know, I have a job. And actually, I have a job at Columbia University where they're silly enough to give me tenure. I can't be fired. I have a very different risk profile, Okay. Buffett has a very different risk profile, okay? So uh, I think that points, uh, uh, points made in the book, and particularly small in, in, in the new book that will be out in May next year, uh, that you've got to understand your attitude towards risk. Mm -hmm. And that of your clients. That's why I think a good, a good buy side, investment portfolio understands his or her climate, uh, customers and understand what their tolerance for risk. And speaking about Buffett, I'm curious. I mean, he comes up a lot in our conversations here. Uh, you mentioned him in the book and also now. Uh, maybe you have already met him, but if you would have, say, an hour with him to discuss accounting and valuation, what would you speak about? Oh, I, I think I know his thinking. I, I think I would ask him to raise some of these ideas with him and just get an endorsement because I very much, I very much uh, uh, respect, respect him. He believes valuation doesn't work too. Valuation models are not the way to do it. Although he does say, look, if you want to think about buying a stock, think about where the future book earnings and book value are going to be in the future. That's pro forma accounting for the future. I would, um, uh, I do, uh, I have a student by the name of Todd, Todd Coombs who is uh, Buffett's, one of Buffett's lieutenants. He took a lot from my class, loved my class. So conversation, he sends some of his analysts to my class. So conversation with him, continue. I know he's on the same wavelength. Um, I probably won't get a chance to speak to, but speak to uh, 
to uh, Buffett, and never have actually. I, I hold one Berkshire Hathaway share, but I've never been up to the zoo uh, in Omaha. <laughs> but um, anyway, but uh, by the way, um, anyone who wants to th see, anyone who wants to um, get a get an indication of how important accounting is, on YouTube there's a clip of Warren Buffett talking at um, some years ago at Wharton Business School. Okay. And he's talking about accounting. I, I hear it the first thing in class. Look at first first class. It's very he emphasized. You have to know accounting. Okay, um, he'll emphasize you've got to know the business, and he knows accounting so well that you know he can come at it very quickly. He can he can sit down with a cup of coffee for breakfast and read the ten k and sign the deal at ten a.m. Okay, but he will he will he. It's a very good very good video. He speaks very well too in common man or women's language, okay, uh, very nicely. Yeah. And from your perspective, do you think he and other big investors should push uh, regulators and other in the accounting professional more that they should develop the accountings to make them better? Yes, yes, they do. So, for example, uh, in 2018, both the I uh, IFRS, the ISB and the FASB, uh, required firms to put unrealized gains and losses on the on their investment portfolio, equity portfolios into uh, into the income statement, and he was he came out in strong protest. He said, "Look, stock markets go up and down. We're investing for the long term. The fact that went up this period and down this period, and he has a big portfolio, so he can have big reward, very big losses. Okay, in a period, we're buying undervalued stocks. So if they go down, we might actually buy more of them. Okay." He says this is very bad accounting, uh, and uh, whereas before it was reported in what's called other comprehensive income, um, so he was very much aware. That's that, that's the answer to your fair value question. He was he's very concerned about using market prices as the indication of the value of the portfolio, because the business is finding stocks where the market price is not valuable. Mm -hmm. So so he does that. Um, he was a, a big. Uh, he talked very loudly on uh, on uh, stock options when that was an issue. Um, you pay a plea with cash; it's an expense. You pay them with the shareholders' paper, and you don't book it. <laughs> um, he, he would say. Um, so, and, and he comes about on about many EBITDA, for example. He says, "Do you think the tooth fairy actually?" Brings the, the capital investment? No. Factories and everything rust. You've got to depreciate them. You just can't throw that out. You can't throw wages expense out. You can't throw depreciation out. So very good basic thinking about accounting, uh, uh, about accounting and the numbers you want to use and what are what's bad accounting and what's good accounting. Is there still something that you don't agree with or have different views on? No, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I've got a number of proposals for uh, for better accounting that that uh, I'm not sure how to agree agree with. Uh, for example, I don't uh, I don't like this mark to market accounting for equity portfolios less than twenty percent. Um, I think you should see some see through accounting, okay, rather than just mark Apple up and down by the stock price. Actually, see through. A, they call a partial consolidation, even for equity method, less than fifty percent. Yeah, let's have a partial consolidation so you can see what's in the subsidiary. Okay, 
we don't get much. We don't get the balance sheet of the subsidiary unless it's traded. We don't get, we just get this share of income in the subsidiary. Well, what the heck is going on there? Um, no, I, 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 I haven't seen anything which I would disagree with uh, from what he said. No. And as this is a book podcast, we'd like to wrap up with a few questions about reading and, and writing. And you have written numerous journal articles, working papers, books. Um, and now you also mentioned that you have a new book uh, coming out. So maybe you can tell us a bit more about when this is coming out. Well, that's going to be out in, uh, in May. It's jointly with uh, Professor Peter Pope, who's at Bocconi University, formerly at LSE at Bocconi University. Uh, we've been working on the same course, accounting for value both at Bocconi and in Colombia. Um, it is, it's in some sense, it's a combination of my two previous the textbook and the accounting for value book, uh, but bring it very much up and up to date and bring out many new ideas. Okay. Uh, it is written uh, not as a, how do I say this, not really as a traditional textbook. Okay, we find these days that students don't buy textbooks because there's a lot of, they get their notes in class, the bullet points, but they don't read it. Okay, particularly as the publisher in the US, my financial statement now's book is $250. Shocking. Okay, shocking. Uh, we're publishing this with Columbia University Press, which is non profit and is doing it at a reasonable price for students. But we've found that students don't buy textbooks. But if there's a book which with practitioners read and refer to, then they'll grab it, okay? So this book is actually, it's a textbook with much more detail and accounting for value, but on a very practical level for practitioners, okay? So it's for the young investors, it's for the professional investors. We hope that this might take there and therefore the students will, will go for it. Now, I'm an oldie. Uh, so I find it more difficult writing to you young people, um, but I think it's much more lively. It's funny in parts, okay? It's been a nice a nice enterprise to try and work like this. So that's coming out, at, I think they say May. Okay. May 2024. 24, yes. Mm. Eager to read that one. And uh, another question, if is there any book that you would like to read but not write yourself? Great books. Great books are wonderful, okay? And there are many great books in the in the literature going way back, which I love to read. Um, if a great book comes out with good thinking, but if it's a novel, good characterization, uh, a good characterization, good dialogue, but with a message there, something to learn, I love it. I wish I could write a book like that. Okay, but that's far beyond me. Okay, so I'm very, I'm very, I'd love to do that. One thing I would like to see written is a book about the, the, the um, wider role of the, the role of accounting in society and how it's important to society. Okay, I've just written a paper on called "Accounting for Carbon." It's a whole accounting system for tracking carbons, net carbon emissions. Okay, it has balance sheets and income statements rather than just your basic emission number. Um, uh, I'd like to say a book which deals with hey. What's wrong with the government accounting and how can we can we deal with it? What's wrong with, with economists? They, they talk about flows. They talk about costs, revenues, expenses, costs, margin revenue, marginal costs. There's, most of the time, there's no balance sheet. They talk about 
current account deficits and trade deficits and surpluses. Yeah, the US has a trade, a trade and current account surplus a deficit with China, but there's also a balance sheet. Apple, Microsoft, these companies have that heck of a lot of value in China and that's on their balance sheet. You've got to have one theme of the book, you've got to use balance sheets and income statements together. You just can't use the flow statement. So some a book like that, maybe I'll write this sometime, okay, before I die. Okay. But that's a that's a book I'd like to see I'd like to see written. And so try to bring persuasion. Say, hey, don't think it's boring. Don't think it doesn't matter. Don't think it's just a compliance matter to, to tick off boxes. Here's what it can do for you. Great. There are many ways to give back and you have really given us and all of our listeners a lot today. Uh, where can our audience follow you and your work? I'm a bit of a low-profile person, actually. I'm not on social media. You can go to my website, Columbia, and see my writings. Get to know, know me by what I write about, okay? Don't get to know me. Get to know the ideas, okay? So that's where you'll find them. I'm always open to correspondence, okay? And any, any of your listeners want to write to me with a... I get emails very, very regularly, many a day, okay? From people who read and ask questions and want to make contact, um, feel free, and I respond to those very, very, very definitely. So I'm open, okay. But if you're a reporter and you want to call me up at 5 p.m. saying you need a quote for tomorrow's edition, no, thank you, okay. Um, I'd have to. Go, you're going to have to take you through this. If you want to come to my office and think, work through an idea to write a long article, yes, please do, okay. That's how I think about it. Perfect. Thank you so much, Stephen, and all the best. All the best, and thank you very much for giving me this time to, to, to share with you and your listeners. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Red Eye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.